Truth Warrior, Woke Destroyer. All in America. Randy Tobler. Dreaming in red, white, and blue. On News Talk STL. Welcome to the Randy Tobler Show. After storms ripped through the area last evening, hope yours and your home and your humble abode was doing okay. Leah Amstead over there trying to herd all the cats. Well, the cats in the studio are just me and Leah, but that's good enough. Leah saw some cats playing uh, out at, uh, it used to be called Riverport. Well, not Riverport, I don't know. The, the, you were at the amphitheater the other night, right, Leah? Yeah, you can still call it Riverport. Is I know my still what it's my called? parents do. That's yeah. not what it's called, but I know that's what's what it's ofi- known. What's for. the official name now? It's just Hollywood Casino Amphitheater. Ah, okay. And Tears for Fears, and you're going to play a little uh, little music from them throughout the morning, right? Or yeah, yeah. But I okay. think you're the only one that doesn't know who they are. So <laughs> now you went and blew my secret. I don't know. Are they rock and roll? I know Tears for Fears. I'm, I probably know their songs, but I yes. may not know their names. I don't know. Hey, my number is 314-912-1019 if you want to weigh in on the program, any of the topics we talk about. We have a big lineup for you this morning. Lots of, to talk about. Of course, Cocaine Gate seems to be dead in the water. Tucker hosted a big uh, interview panel, a number of interviews with presidential hopefuls yesterday in Des Moines, Iowa. That would be Des Moines. I know better. Uh, And uh, raised a few eyebrows with some talk with Asa Hutchinson and others. He challenged people, as Tucker will do. Uh, It appears as though Christopher Wray, at least according to one whistleblower, may have lied to uh, the uh, Oversight Committee when he, um, uh, well, the Weaponization Committee uh, this week when he was um, testifying. At least that's according to one whistleblower. Uh, The Long Island cold killer case was... uh, was uh, was solved, apparently, with an architect being brought in for the brutal murder of at least four of, what, nine or ten victims, including a child back in 2010 um, along a, a beach in Long Island there, a suburban area. Really a weird case. I, I guess I'd forgotten about it, and I, you know, because we, it's not our area, and you, you don't necessarily pay attention to these things as much, but an architect living and working happily for the next 13 years, every you know, quietly, no one knew. And through some great legal forensics and technology use, apparently they brought this guy to justice. Of course, you know, we'll have to see how things play out. He pled guilty yesterday. Um, oh, Leah, there's hope. There's hope for you in the loan forgiveness. Uh, okay. Uh, wars going on because the Biden administration is trying to, you know, sort of do a workaround after the Supreme Court decision, you know, took the wind out of your sails there on the hope for a little loan forgiveness. Um, and I have a, oh, CMS. for you. I know there's a lot of you that listen to us <coughs> as uh, you are going to work, maybe at the hospital or getting ready for the doctor's office if you're open on Saturday mornings. Um, and, uh, you know, this and, and if you're a patient who is nearing or at uh, Medicare age, I have to tell you, CMS is proposing a cut in the Medicare physician fees uh, for next year. And you may think this is a small story, but nothing that has to do with your health, whether you're in health care and many, many, many uh, St. Louis area citizens are in the metro area, both, uh, you know, the east and the west side of the river. Uh, 
all the way out to, my gosh, you know, there's great uh, hospitals and facilities all the way out in Washington and St. Charles, and we've got great, great health care everywhere. Well, uh, whether you are a caregiver, a healthcare professional of some type, or whether you're a, um, a patient, or some, some news out of Medicare and what they're trying to do to doctor fees, now, you don't need to get the violins out, but I'm just giving you the cold, hard facts because I know a little bit about that from the other side of the stethoscope and uh, from an administrator standpoint as well. I mean, there's just a lot of when when big government decides to make top down decisions, it impacts so much more than they ever imagined. They have no clue what it impacts. And um, I will talk about that as well as the program rolls on. And then I do have a story I saved just for you, Leah. And I'm thinking we should probably do that at the uh, at the 6:45 slot uh, because um, yes, we'll do that at the 6:45 slot because it's something that's very special. And you are you are are you a gen you're a Gen Zer is that right, Leah? Mm, gen Z. Unfortunately, yeah. Okay, well, I have a story just for you, right here in my <laughs> okay in, in my non-nicotine stained hands, and there's a little sound. I've been sitting on this story because you know I'm careful about anecdotes, and I don't I don't like to to, to necessarily use anecdotes, whether it's something you see on TikTok or Twitter or you know the social media or news story. I don't like to say one example sort of paints the whole picture, but. Now, of course, it's true that while we always have to, I mean, when any decision made is at any level, whether it's organizational or family or, uh, you know, governmental, there, there have to be assumptions made about uh, a, a given group of people and how they are reacting or will react to a given policy. I mean, if it's parents, it's like, how will our children react, even though the children are all different and one may not react exactly the same as the others. So... Um, there's a great story about Gen Z, and I have a little sound to at least undergird a little bit of that, but we'll talk about that when we come back. And there's potentially a new diagnosis in medicine that I've never heard about. It's contrived, of course, but um, I don't know. I, it's a crazy story. Um, why don't we Why don't we talk about, I, I, I tell you what, why don't we get started, uh, uh, Leah, with... Um, Yes, let's get started with Matt Gates grilling Chris Ray over the Biden Gate scandal. Of course, the Hunter laptop and all of the expose that it resulted in uh, concerning Hunter and the Biden uh, dynasty through what appears to be some money laundering of uh, some funny money going through multiple LLCs. Ultimately, they found this through the the Tucker uh, through the uh, the Hunter laptop. And Christopher Ray was over on Capitol Hill the other day in the Weaponization of Government Committee, and in the uh, in the in the uh, Oversight Committee. And this is a little interchange clip two between Matt Gates and Chris Ray. But I have other questions. I'm sitting here with my father. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows, and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Sounds like a shakedown, doesn't it, Director? Uh, I'm not going to get into commenting on that. Well, you, you, you seem deeply uncurious about it, don't you? Almost suspiciously uncurious. Are you protecting the Bidens? 
Ac absolutely not. The FBI well, does not has no oh, interest in You won't answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown, and everybody knows why you won't answer it. Because to, ev to the millions of people who will see this, they know it is. And your inability to acknowledge that is deeply revealing about you. But let's go from... All right. So pretty, pretty damning testimony there the other day. You could tell the where he got very defensive. He got uh, worked up when he said he wasn't defending. Well, maybe not him directly. And, and to be fair, I mean, the director of a large agency like that, while they technically stopped the buck at that desk, it's certainly the case that as we found with Peter Strzok and his lover, Lisa Page, that there there are agendas that go on within the, the mid to upper level management that the director may not know about, but that yet can be implemented through various policies and procedures to, um, to uh, you know, really uh, hurt people badly or in another case, protect people, which is what we've seen uh, on the one case. We saw the hurt through the Trump administration and the way they went after Trump on the nefarious, you know, absolutely manufactured dossier. And on the other hand, to protect those that uh, are friendly or are related to the boss at the sitting in the in the White House, in the Oval Office. So that's that's a, that's a that's a crazy thing. Now, there was an interesting other part of that, and I won't waste playing uh, the time uh, waste the time playing it for you. But um, on Wednesday, when uh, when Ray was talking about, he was talking he was talking about whether he whether uh, whether parents were being investigated by the FBI. Or, uh, that is, you know, the school board issue when the letter came out from the National School Board Association, and um, you know, it's one thing for a director to say that. You know, I'm not aware of it. But in another case, he basically did tell the judiciary GOP, this is Christopher Ray, that special agents did not conduct surveillance of school boards. And and here's a here's a whistleblower named Steve Friend, who I guess was investigating child pornography and and was, you know, ultimately, you know how that goes. You become a whistleblower and you're persona non grata, even though they're not supposed to retaliate. He ended up being out of the out of the FBI. Um and here's what he said. The FBI director told Judiciary GOP, this is in a tweet, uh, that special agents did not conduct surveillance of school boards. He lied, says whistleblower Steve Friend. The Joint Terrorism Task Force in my office did it. I testified about the details in May. And further, he went on to say the FBI director told, and this was he told Representative Troy Nels, that no agents were reassigned from child exploitation investigations to domestic terrorism. Another lie. I was reassigned from child pornography cases and told those cases were going to be considered a local matter. <laughs> so, I mean, this is just crazy. Uh, now, is is a whistleblower just an axe grinder who's trying to nail Chris Ray and anyone else in management, for that matter, at the highest levels of the FBI. I guess that's always a possibility, but um, it it turns out that it, it's a false assertion that Chris Ray made, according to uh, Steve Friend. Um, here is what Christopher Ray had said: The FBI is not and never has been in the business of policing or invest policing or investigating speech by parents at school board meetings. When there's violence or threats of violence, we're going to work with our state and local partners as we always have. And he said, uh, "Now the now the Twitter says this: The FBI statement is misleading." On May 18th, former FBI agent Steve Friend testified before the House 
this was readers actually context added that uh, that he testified to the opposite. Here's the point. Here's the point. Will we ever get to a point where, on the one hand, a director of the FBI or whatever other institution, the FDA, the CDC, the IRS, those organizations in which we've lost a lot of trust for various reasons, most of them legitimate, some not over the years, um, will there ever be a time when they can honestly say, look, I have a mess to clean up. I'm working on it. We don't turn a ship around overnight, a big, big, big ship that has gone astray. Uh, but I'm working on it. And yes, there have been and there will continue to be mistakes. I'm doing my best to clean up a very large albatross that we're working on. And at the same time, to have people like Matt Gates, who, by the way, rudely interrupted Chris Ray before he could finish his talk. That is not helpful. I'm I'm disturbed when I see lawmakers on either side do that. They have an agenda. They're trying to make campaign commercials. I understand that. But well, it's not I understand it, but it's 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 not where they should be. It's not how they should be acting or not where they should be acting like that either. So will there ever be a time when an institutional leader can take a little mea culpa and, and humbly say we're working on it? And no institution, because institutions are made of people, is ever going to be perfect, which leads to the second important point. Will we ever get to a point that leaders will not be uh, that uh, congressional uh, leaders, uh, representatives, senators, those running for office um, will stop? being graceless people who grandstand, who hyperbolically portray everything. It happens on both sides. And shouldn't we expect better out of our leaders when there is clear evidence of nefarious action on the part of someone else? It's indisputable. It's been reported on by even the left. If you're talking about a Democrat who's gone awry or on the right, you know, and, and then I think it's fair game to go after someone. But uh, we need to we need to tone down the incivility and allow people who I believe Chris Ray is probably trying to do better. I just don't think you can lasso everyone in every office at every time. And maybe that speaks to the problem that our institutions have gotten too large and they are unmanageable in that sense. Later on, we talk health care. Uh, this next segment, we talk with Gabby Hoffman from Independent Women's Forum. You know, the economy is beginning to slow down. People are going to be losing jobs, looking to fill in when they lose their part uh, full-time job, going to be an independent contractor, working in the gig economy, uh, becoming freelance workers. Many of you already do. That portion of the economy is going up. Well, across the states and federally, they're working on that uh, and to try to thwart that because the unions and the uh, businesses are colluding on that. Uh, talk with Gabby about that in a few minutes. Healthcare, there's some private options advancing in the house to give you a little more portability with your healthcare. Regular visit with Virginia Cruda. Michael Bussler, our economist of record, will be uh, with us at 8 o'clock. Uh, he'll be talking about the CPI numbers out just last week. And we'll wrap it up with Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith. Here's as though we may have had six months of the most deadly mass shootings in a long, 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 long time. That's not good. Let's see what her diagnosis and prescription is. Lots more coming up on the Tobler Show. Glad that you were with me. See you in a couple. joins us now, senior fellow at Independent Women's Forum and um, a, a real uh, important cog in the wheel there of their Center for Energy and Conservation and a real conservationist herself. Gabby, thanks for joining me. 
Good to be back on with you, Randy. You know, I uh, I was talking with my, my kids last night, my family, about, um, you know, with the slowdown in employment that we started to see last week and, the, you know, the, the coming slowdown in the economy that's planned, right? I mean, that's part of the whole inflation assault. More and more people are going to be offloaded off their employment, and many of them, either because of pandemic or because of this coming, you know, downturn, are going to become independent workers they're going to independent contractors are going to become gig workers you know part of the gig economy i know that that's the way you earn a living and i know you've been very concerned about the impact of very various federal and even state programs you wrote something about uh rhode island's um plan to hurt those people tell us about it and what it means for folks that are either in that economy or contemplating going there right so we see an assault on freelancing happening federally and we do see it at the state level, especially in blue states. And Rhode Island, as you referenced, just passed a very onerous piece of legislation. And I got the updated information that they were not going to go with charging you $50 per client, uh, even though it's not reflected on the website yet. But we were corrected and said that there's no $50 fee charge yet. Um, maybe down the road they'll implement it. But this is so invasive in terms of what they're proposing. So they have several components to this piece of legislation, Senate Bill 427 that was signed into law by their governor. It's a very union heavy state, not surprisingly, and in lieu of passing an ABC test, which was also on the table this past session, but they voted to study the issue more, but it means probably an ABC test could pass in the next cycle. What's an ABC test? A worker classification test, which is pretty strenuous, puts very strenuous conditions on the giving kind of levity and latitude to people to work and operate as independent contractors. So the test assumes much like California's AB5, that you are an employee unless you meet these three (laughs) prongs, ABC. And so Rhode Island was also similarly dabbling with that. But a workaround it is this Senate Bill 427 which basically says in order to be an independent contractor, you have to register with the state. So the Department of Taxation and Labor. And then your information, once you're forced to register, if there's not gonna be non-compliance, but there will probably be some non-compliance. Then once you register in compliance with this to keep your status, um, even though they were originally gonna charge you $50 per client that you maintain, um, still very bad that you have to register. And once you register, starting in January next year, your name will show up publicly in a database that is publicly searchable. That's intentional by unions to potentially, you know, shame people who are independent contractors who don't become unionized workers or even employers who have independent workers working for them, obviously not receiving benefits, but companies also contract out to people and they know the workers that they're not going to get benefits and they like having gigs that way too. And so it's a way to shame Employers who may hire independent contractors, again, with the stipulations laid out that these are not full-time employees, and also to target maybe independent contractors who don't want to be unionized as well. And so publicly available, having to register, and if you don't register, you're going to have to face a penalty, which is absurd. You you shouldn't be having to do that. Traditional employees don't do that. Independent contractors shouldn't have to Mm -hmm. be subjected to that either. That's why we have raised a lot of alarm bells on the Rhode Island bill at Independent Women's Forum. And we could talk about this news. I know you wanted to bring me back on this week because Julie Sue, her nomination looks to be yes. stalling because Joe Manchin of West Virginia came out and said he can't support her candidacy for the position, even though she is acting labor secretary right now. 
So that's a good thing, right? I mean, we don't. We it don't, is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because she has a track record of not being friendly to. Look, let me just let me just zoom out here, Gabby, because I don't think people understand. Maybe just from a just from a a libertarian slash American freedom worldview kind of a thing. What's going on here with this assault on independent contractors? It's almost as though what you're describing in Rhode Island and some of the shenanigans going on um, nationally, either in legislation or through someone like a Julie Sue who would, you know, regulate the heck out of people that want to be free. It's almost as though you have to prove worthiness not to be a serf. Because it's either the unions that want to own you or it's employers that want to own you. Now, on the other hand, I can understand is is the only argument in favor of having some uh, circumspection about independent contractors from a government standpoint. Um, I think in most states in the country, Medicaid is the highest line item on the state budget, right? And it, could it be that sort of the Walmart scenario where, you know, okay, you're an independent contractor, you don't have insurance, you get sick, you show up at the, at the or, or you have a big accident, you show up at the emergency room, of course, ethically and legally, they can't say no. So from a governance standpoint, trying to be a good steward of taxpayers' money, you say, look, someone's got to pay the bill for you, and if you're an IC and you decide not to do the thing, get the benefits for yourself that an employer would, would do, we have to we have to have some scrutiny over this. Is that a is that a legitimate argument or not? Not exactly. I would say it's more so them viewing people who are not traditional workers, especially unionized traditional workers, as lost revenue. So the whole misclassification kind of cause to action, claim to action, claim to fame rather, is they, they use that platitude to say that these are not independent workers, they're not legitimate. You never hear them praise legitimate independent contractors or they say, well, it won't affect you guys, but it does. The way that all these laws are engineered, this rulemaking would be engineered, but they view independent contractors largely as lost tax revenue. Mm. Even though we are paying a lot more in taxes, we pay state income tax, we pay federal income tax, and we pay a self-employment tax at 15%, <laughs> Social yeah. Security and Medicaid, mm. included, Medicare included in that 15%. So we are paying our fair share as taxpayers, if you want to put it that way. Okay, well, there you go. They're missing, I get they're, it. They still think they're missing revenue. Yeah, yeah. And they think that misclassification is the most costly of fees that they're missing from not having so-called additional revenue from us being traditional employees. However, the cost of reclassification, which is what they want to do through an ABC test, mm -hmm. would be five, six, seven, ten times at least big quantities larger mm -hmm. uh, in terms of economic negative output, yeah. what would happen there than the cost of addressing so-called misclassification. We already have laws on the books addressing misclassification. If an employer is found in violation of improperly classifying someone who works for them, they, they want to skirt the laws, they usually get punished right. in doing so. They just have to be enforced. And most people know that they don't want to get into the crosshairs of the labor department and other regulatory agencies through that. So they're not deliberately doing that. Are there some cases? Absolutely. But the state laws and federal law already rectify that. But again, these proponents of such reclassification efforts don't think contractors are legitimate. They think we are lost revenue because, again, we're independent and they fault us for contributing to the decline of union membership. Okay. And of course, who contributes to their reelection every year perennially? It's the unions, right? Okay. I think we all say follow the money and you'll follow the, um, 
disruption of our liberties. All right. On another note, uh, you're active, obviously, on keeping an eye on the environmental, um, uh, social and governance, the ESG matters that can affect uh, pension plans, people's retirement, um, you know, with sort of some misdirection of invested funds typically or or, or I guess potentially on the back of this uh, idealistic view of the world. A new report out today from the House Financial Services Committee and uh, our uh, one of our congressmen here in this area, actually, Blaine Lutkemeyer, is on that committee. Tell us about it. Yes. So this is the House Financial Services ESG Working Group that was created on the outset of the creation or following the start of the 118th Congressional session. Mm -hmm. And Republicans have promised since getting into the majority in the House that they will tackle ESG. They've been trying to do it on the rulemaking side to stop the Department of Labor. They had Democratic support to override that rule. Unfortunately, President Biden vetoed that. We've talked about that before. Um, So even with bipartisan support, they've tried to stop the excesses of ESG creeping into not only financial decisions, but governmental rulemaking, because ESG is creeping now into policy decisions, not just your financial investments. It is now an extension of their ideology as a way to coerce people to agree with them in a sense. So it could be a coercive political tool as well, ESG. It's not just a financial, a very flawed financial investment strategy. And so they came up with eight solutions in terms, or priorities rather, of what they hope to do to tackle ESG. And a few that come top of mind are to make sure, well, for one, um, they want to make sure that activist shareholders can't just buy, uh, you know, votes and influence and then shape the voting in the the boardrooms, um, because I think it's a very low barrier to entry where you could have $2,000 in shares and then you can dictate what people are voting on. (laughs) And so that's the reform they want to do to make sure that that can't be exploited. Um, The various different petitions that go in that shouldn't be there, um, but they're inserted because they buy power. Um, So they want to reform that. There's also um, accountability for the big three, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, to make sure that they are not engaging in um, forceful behaviors in terms of ESG behaviors that go against shareholder interests and investor interests. And so they want to make sure that they're not engaging in antitrust and other potentially Ah. illegal activities, so holding them accountable. And there's also ISS and Glass-Lewis who can control about 70 or 97 percent of proxy voting market share and uh, they often abuse their power of position since they have a monopoly there so that's the third reform that i alluded to in my um article and they talked about something to make sure that the european union is not asserting itself in financial decisions but a whole host of um proposals it's very condensed easy to read and see what they want to do but i think it's practical solutions um and they're not trying to use you know the force of government you know to enact this but they're saying that uh, you should stick with prioritizing financial investment decisions over non-pecuniary or non-financial decisions um and then data is increasingly showing that and um in in line with that actually a little after the report was released at the end of june um it was announced like a, a week and a half ago within the last week that jim jordan of house judiciary committee is actually launching an investigation into all these investment uh, entities into BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, into these, um, yeah, to make sure that they're not in violation of antitrust. So it coincides perfectly with that, and I'm curious to see what their investigation leads to, but even ESG proponents have said, we have to rename ourselves, we have to reimagine ourselves because people don't like the three prongs, the E, the S, the G, 
We have to find a way to retool ourselves. And even some of the biggest proponents at a recent ESG conference, I believe in Boston, one of the guys who's from Oxford University said, you need to befriend Republicans to get them on board because we're losing them. (laughs) So that means that efforts to combat ESG led by largely Republicans is catching on and they do view us as a threat. Even though they dismiss our criticisms, they say, well, uh, you guys are against the market and you're against free markets. Free markets are not coercive. Yeah, uh, That's what they get very wrong. So I think Republicans are right to combat this because the repelling and anti-market uh, tactic with, you know, offering choice, contrasting it, because this is not pro-markets. This is not freedom of choice. This is coercive. It, it ultimately will be coercive, even though it's starting in the corporate boardrooms, because the Biden administration is wanting to implement tenants of it through policymaking and make ESG kind of like a guideline for every agency. That's the goal. Well, and it's true that even though this country has, uh, you know, has, I think, done a pretty good job of our air and water cleaning to, since, what, the 70s, we, we've been able to do it of the reasonable economy. But the new, the new guard wants to bring down the economy in the name of this utopian and probably unachievable dream. And at the same time, now hurt individual uh, retirees, potentially, because yeah. of this, this assault on their private finances indirectly. It's got to stop. Hey, I'm really thankful for your um, vigilance on this, your resolve. And uh, if these people think that Gabriella Hoffman, um, you know, isn't is going to let loose, have they ever seen you fight a big fish? The fish always loses, <laughs> so they're going to lose if they fight with you. I know that. Hey, thanks for being with me and unpacking these things. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Randy. Thank All you right. for having me. All right, my pleasure. We'll see you. I enjoy talking with Gabby Hoffman and the other women of Independent Women's Forum. Why? Because, well, currently they are really fighting the the fight against existentially uh, eroding a lot of the advances made in behalf of women. Uh, and, and many of them, She, I, I don't think she's uh, got a family yet, but uh, many of the women there have families. They're working women. Many are independent contractors like Gabby. And in this case, they're uh, they're fighting for that right to be a mom, a a wife, a, a worker, and on the terms that they want to be. Wow, what a unique thought. That seems to define liberty and freedom, doesn't it? Uh, also, they're fighting the anti-trans, uh, the, the transition battle, which and trans in sports, which threatens uh, women's sports. And of course, uh, that's we talk about that frequently here on the program. Hey, if you like what you uh, have seen in the two years that News Talk STL has uh, been around, and I sure like what I listen to because I am uh, the biggest fan. I'm always streaming on the app or on the web or uh, if I'm, you know, around with the radio on, I do it there. Um, make sure you join us for the birthday party. That's coming up on Thursday, July 20th, this next Thursday at Johnny's Hideout in High Ridge. We'll be celebrating the second birthday at News Talk STL. And so, of course, without you, it all doesn't happen. So you want to make sure you're there. Um, of course, Johnny's is a great place because of the live music, great food and drinks. So it's a perfect place to get together and do that. Party starts with a live broadcast of the Jones and Arp show from four to six, followed by live music at seven. Leah, you're going to be singing. I saw a post where you were singing at your church the other day. Are you going to be performing uh, any a little karaoke that night? Maybe? Uh, no, and I don't know what post you're talking about. Oh no no no! That wasn't you. It was another <laughs> friend, another producer, another producer friend of mine. Okay. But your dad is a performer. Your dad that was cast. That was cast. Okay. Uh, another, but now your dad's a performer. So uh, keyboard, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, yeah, he's good. He's good. Hey, uh, so when we come back, I'm going to talk about something that you know. This is 
now, now I want to make it clear that what we're going to talk about doesn't apply, doesn't apply to producer Leah, even though she happens to be a Generation Zer. But um, there's been a survey about Generation Z folks as employees, and we're going to, you know, put together that story with a little clip that I found on TikTok. And um, we'll see what you all think. The number is 314-912-1019. Gen Z, employment, interesting attitudes towards life. That coming up on The Tobler Show, straight ahead. That's Tears for Fears? Yeah. Well, of course I know that song. Yeah. Oh, so we were talking about Leah and mom and dad, uh, you know, her mom and dad hanging out at the, what did you call it? The casino amphitheater? Yeah. I don't know. I know it is Riverport. Too. Yeah. And uh, saw that post, uh, Tears for Fears, Tears for Fears. Well, who are they? Well, of course I know that song. So I, okay, that I get it. And there were other songs you said you heard that you didn't, hadn't really connected with that group, but you recognized the song. Yeah. I went in like knowing for sure two songs and left with like maybe five that I'm like oh okay I know these <laughs> all right hey uh we just to set things up for you guys in case you want to make sure that you're here for this listen Dean Clancy's going to be with us top of the next hour why he's a healthcare expert and he uh fights uh, with Americans for Prosperity and other groups uh for personal options and for expansion of your ownership of your health care. Wow, what a novel idea in these United States of America. Just a couple weeks here past, uh, past well, a week and a half past July 4th where we celebrated independence. We're losing it every day, it seems, as we give up our independence uh, for uh, alleged security because of the state taking care of us one way or another. Um so there's some, been some movement in the house. We're going to talk to him about that. And I have a couple other questions for him, particularly about something that I am passionate about. You're going to hear about it. And um, and I hope that you look into it if it's something that uh, if you're not happy with your health care, that is this whole movement uh, towards uh, direct primary care uh, as, a, as a method of getting real health care the way it ought to be. Um, but we'll talk with Dean then. And then we're going to have Virginia Cruda coming up at 745. Um we're going to look at the economy at 8 o'clock with Michael Bussler. And then at 8.25, Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith from the National Police Association. He's done everything from dispatching to canine to detective work and, uh, you know, a, a cop on the street. And she's going to help us talk about some of the latest disappointing numbers coming out of mass shootings, what can be done about them. Um, so, Leah, you're a Gen Zer, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think this story applies for you, but applies to you. But three quarters of bosses in a recent survey by ResumeBuilder.com, wherein they surveyed uh, thirteen hundred and fifty managers and business leaders, three quarters of them said that Gen Z workers are uh, difficult to work with. Now, that doesn't apply to you, of course. I mean, you're great. No problem. So, you know, there's always a, you know, there's always exceptions to what appears to be a fairly common consensus. Here's what one said. This was uh, a guy uh, who's the head of HR at SGK Global Shipping Services. Now, now this is going to make you cringe. And again, this is not about you, Leah. Okay. 
But I want you to think about your peer group. Maybe not your peer group because eagles fly with eagles and buzzards fly with buzzards. So maybe, you know, maybe I'm not saying Gen Z or buzzards, but they seem to have a problem with work ethic. They think they're better than you, smarter than you, more capable than you, and they will tell you to your face. When I will say, when I we came before we came on this morning, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Leah said, "I said, well, who, Tears for Fears. I saw you guys at that concert." And he said, "Yeah, what? You don't know who Tears or Fears? What, you, no, you weren't. You weren't. You were just like incredulous." <laughs> yeah. But you don't make fun of me because I may not be as technologically. I am not up to speed, nor will I ever be, as you are with social media. Your generation is with social media, mm-hmm. like mine was with a clutch you don't even know what a clutch is in a car do you mm-hmm. so uh you know so you're comfortable with that and you do very well with that but i it's interesting isn't it that this this guy i think reflects with a lot of people it's like they come in full of you know what and vinegar mm-hmm. and seem to sort of dismiss whatever their authority figure in their life their older person working with them or their boss studied by McKinsey and company the management consultancy found Gen Zers restless in their jobs more likely to report hostile work environments and health problems both physical and mental three quarters three quarters of Gen Z employees said they were actively seeking other jobs I'm not going to ask you that because I know the bosses may be listening uh, in the new survey taken I'm kidding you taken in April by the survey platform pollfish, Half of employers said they find it difficult to work with Generation Z most or all of the time. Two-thirds said they were more likely to fire Gen Z workers than older staffers, sometimes in the first week of employment. Wow. What's your reaction, Leah? You, I mean, you know, you probably have had people maybe you went to school with. Do you find any truth to this? Uh, I would say yes. Um, mm-hmm. Not, I think... This more applies to like the younger Gen Zers because I don't know anybody personally that's like this, but um, one of my other jobs is umpiring softball. And I know some of the, you know, 14, 16, you know, those that age, those girls. Yeah. Those are pretty much right up that alley of what you're saying. And I could see them. Yeah having that entitlement at jobs yeah i think it's a you're right it's that entitlement and which i think is maybe born out of sort of that Mm self-absorption and it may be that their parents often were maybe too protective or too helicopterish and too sort of the trophy generation thing you know where everyone's got to win and all that i mean i certainly the um I i think the millennials may have suffered from that a little bit but at any rate well so I had held on to this story because I don't like to really, you know, generalize. And by the way, there's a lot of good that this generation brings in, a lot of good values like um, creativity and, and you know, they're, they're worried about social matters, which is a good thing. And they may have it a little distorted, but they're worried about their fellow human being and all those warm and fuzzy things. That's good. Take a listen to this Libs of TikTok video and tell me if this doesn't make you think of maybe some one of your favorite in air quotes, Gen Zer. Listen. So I just got yelled at for asking a very reasonable question. So I'm applying to go somewhere and I just wanted to know, are there accommodations for people who struggle with time blindness and being on time, you know? And then the person I was with interrupted and acted like I was asking something else. And then when we were done, 
they actually started yelling at me and saying that accommodations for time blindness doesn't exist. And if you struggle with being on time, you'll never be able to get a job, you know, provided you're trying your absolute best to be there. And then they're like, your stupid generation wants to destroy the workplace. And yeah, I think that a culture where workers are just cut off because they struggle with being on time when there's other solutions that we can look to. I think that just anybody who thinks it's okay to just treat people like that. Yeah, that culture needs to be dismantled. And then I asked that person, how can you feel good about yourself upholding this kind of system? And then to think I'm entitled. No, if people think it's okay to treat others like this, that's entitlement. So, Leah, uh, the next time that I oversleep for the show, would you tell the bosses that I'm just got a little time blindness? It's, it is there. People have time problems, time management problems when they're uh, when they have ADHD. And I've been told by people who know me that that may be apply to me. I'm, I tend to have uh, distractibility and, and stuff. And so that's fine. And I know I, I, I have a time management problem sometimes. I know that I spend too long with patients because I forget mm-hmm. that I've got another appointment and I'm absorbed with the visit. And so I, I have to have my nurse or, you know, in this case at our practice, my wife remind me, OK, that's fine. But to, to talk about it as though it's a disability and everyone's supposed to move out of the way when someone shows up late repeatedly because of this problem that they should manage. That's crazy, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it <laughs> it also like falls in the same category as, you know, them wanting you to call them by their preferred pronouns. And we're all just supposed <laughs> yeah, to know. go along with it. Like, you right, know, right. It's all about me. It's all about me. Well, yeah. we're going to step aside. Dean Clancy on healthcare coming up in just a few minutes on the Tobler Show on 101.9-941 News Talk STL. Welcome back to the second hour of the Randy Tobler Show. It's always fun when we can talk with healthcare policy experts who are fighting for your independence and ownership of your own health care. What a novel idea in these united, formerly free states of America. Dean Clancy is one of those individuals, senior policy fellow at Americans for Prosperity and a Paragon Health Institute public advisor. Dean, thanks for joining me again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hey, uh, I, I read this uh, story uh, about some great news coming out of the House. Uh, and by the way, people should know you've been involved in the fight for, um, you know, creation of health care savings accounts and an advocate for, you know, having people own their own insurance and having it portable. There's some good news for um, for people and sort of getting out of the grip of, uh, uh, you know, larger concerns and being more able to have portability with their own health care uh, coming out of the House. Talk, Please tell us about it. Yeah, it's really uh, very exciting news. There's not been a lot of coverage, but uh, I think it's a big deal. The House of Representatives in Washington a couple weeks ago now passed a great bill that would make workplace health insurance benefits more affordable and more portable, making it easier for you to keep your insurance when you change jobs. Those are small but important changes. Uh, people need affordability and they really want it. Uh, Americans for Prosperity in our polling, we find people are really, really concerned about the high cost of health care. And this new bill, it's called the CHOICE Act, CHOICES in all capital letters, it would help. It would help to bring down health insurance uh, costs in the workplace. So we're very excited. It passed the House and we're hopeful we can get it through the Senate and put it on President Biden's desk. 
what does the choice plan do? So currently, let's let's define the current average worker who either because of downsizing, which I think is going to become a more of a reality for more people as the economy purposefully slows down. I mean, we saw a little plateauing in employment numbers uh, week before last. Um, so as people are either forced or by choice want to, you know, move along and move to a different uh, situation, they're transitioning out of employment with its benefits on their employer sponsored plan. What does the choice plan potentially mean for them if passed and signed? What the Choice Plan Act does, and it, it actually has two components, I'll describe both, but the main one, uh, and the one from which the bill gets its name, is uh, basically, instead of your employer providing a group health plan that you have to leave when you change jobs and lose your coverage, potentially your new employer wouldn't, maybe your new employer doesn't really provide health benefits or not affordable uh, benefits that are not affordable. Instead, your employer could just provide you with money, and the, you could use that money through an account uh, to buy personally owned portable health insurance, similar to the way we buy automobile insurance, homeowners insurance, and so on. It's a policy we don't lose when we change jobs. And it would be up to employers to decide whether they wanted to offer the choice plan. And of course, it's, it would be up to individuals to decide whether to participate so it would be completely optional but that's not something that's allowed today believe it or not and it would be Mm. under this bill that that's the main thing the portability of choice plans i'll just mention quickly the other component of the bill is association health plans which would allow businesses including the self-employed you know uh, independent contractors uber drivers and so on they could also band together under this bill to obtain affordable health insurance at group rates. That's something that really uh, is difficult for uh, businesses and the self-employed today. So the bill has the choice plans and the association health plans. Now, I know those association health plans were part of the GOP pre-Obamacare um, alternative. That was a big component of that. And it, it, uh, it I forget if it wasn't able to pass or both chambers right. or one chamber, but anyway, it fell flat. Is this essentially a, a, a reinvention of that? Yes, this is the uh, this is an idea that's been around a long time. The idea of letting businesses, uh, smaller businesses especially, band together and provide one health benefit for all of their employees, just like a large business you know has lots of employees that yeah. get group discounts. Let smaller businesses do that. And the most exciting part of this bill that passed the House is that self-employed people, people who are their own employee working for themselves, they can uh, participate in this as well. And and I think for them, that's going to be, you know, they're going to get access to affordable insurance, uh, which is not uh, available to them today. That's exciting. Go ahead, please. That's that's really exciting because, I mean, uh, heretofore, you know, the, the the plumbing contractor who has four or five guys working for him, the, the HVAC, uh, you know, contractor, uh, the roofer, the, you know, I mean, you can go down the line, the tire shop guy, you know, they they can't participate in those group markets because they just don't, they don't have the economy of scale to to really go to the, the broker, it. the insurance broker says, well, wait a minute, you got, you got one guy here who's got, uh, you know, an autoimmune disease, he's getting a $5,000 drug once a month, that shoots you 
out of the water for getting yep. a group health rate that you can afford, right? So they choose not to offer plans. Yep. In this case, all of the plumbers in St. Louis, all of the tire shop owners could somehow, a, a broker could put them together as a, a group as if they were one employer. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, exactly. That's that's what an association health plan is. It's multiple employers, or it could be multiple individual members of a like an association uh, getting together and obtaining insurance at a group rate for everybody. Yeah. Okay. So here's my pushback on that. Not pushback. Yeah. Um, I, I just read that, and I, I think you're going to, I hope you're going to agree with me. This is a good first step. However, what this does is get them in line to become part of what I call the medical industrial complex, which is buying health cares from one of the behemoths, the behemoths. Uh, that are becoming increasingly vertically integrated, consolidated, and the data shows that tends to lead to higher prices because, you know, if one insurer or one hospital system or one uh, pharmacy company, are you listening, CVS, owns the hospitals, the doctors, <laughs> the labs, the do- okay, so that, that enables people to get a ticket to what I think is a dysfunctional system. There's some IRS rules that prevent people that have, for instance, HSAs affiliated with these kind of plans, people in the gig economy, independent workers who want to access a direct primary care practitioner who is who's got a membership plan where you pay 75, 80, 90 bucks a month and you have 24 seven access to these doctors. And it's been proven that is the way to provide health care, reduce acute care costs, keep people out of the ER and the hospital. That's indisputable. But IRS considers them insurance plans are well non-qualified for HSA contributions. So there, there needs to be, in order to expand this and make this really utopian and give people true choice, we need to change up some IRS rules. Uh, how are we doing on that front in terms of some legislation? Well, uh, first of all, you're absolutely right. The, the Choice Act that passed the House two weeks ago is not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve every problem. And you're right. Uh, Right now, health insurance companies are way too dominant in our healthcare system and local health mo- monopolies, often hospital-based monopolies, serious problems that lead to the excessive cost of healthcare that people rightly complain about. But uh, there are other bills to fix those, those problems. You mentioned direct primary care, which is a wonderful subscription-based model where you basically you know, pay a monthly fee to have access to your favorite doctors, and and you don't you you cut out the insurance company middleman altogether for those services. It's a great model. There is legislation in Congress which uh, we at AFP are supporting very strongly that would fix the problems you talked about with the way the IRS restricts access to direct patient care. Uh, it's called the Primary Care Enhancement Act by Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. And um, uh, the bill number is S628. We're, we we want to get that enacted, too. And then, uh, you know, those local health uh, monopolies that are driving up prices around the country. One way to fix those is through something called site-neutral payment. When Instead of paying a, a doctor two or three times as much, simply because a local hospital, a monopoly, has bought up his physician practice and slapped the word hospital on his office door, we should just pay all providers the same amount, regardless of where the care is provided, whether it's a hospital or a doctor's office. If we do that, we'd save hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Patients would save money, too, because they have to pay yeah. those costs, too. 
and so on. Final thing I'll say on this is we have a, a bill called the Health Care Fairness for All Act. Um, it's H.R. 3129 by Congressman Pete Sessions of Texas. Uh, the Fairness Act, I call it. That bill would fix these problems. It includes these reforms that I've just described, including the association health plans and others. It's sort of a package. And it also provides a personal health care credit so that basically you could take your health care anywhere. It would really supercharge the idea of portability of health insurance. The Fairness Act, uh, we're trying to enact that as well. That's a big bill that's, you know, it'll probably take us to a couple of years to get it through. But we're, you know, it's a it's a step by step process. This is really exciting stuff. And folks, uh, you know, I, I know this may seem like we're in the weeds, but it's people like Dean Clancy and the good people at Americans for Prosperity and other partners that they work with who are fighting for your ability to own your own health care. One of the most important, it's, it's as important as your home. Uh, you want to be able to control that because, look, I'm not here to just diss all group insurance plans or traditional, you know, healthcare plans. A lot of medium-sized employers that have great self-funded plans where they have, a, you know, a, a backstop catastrophic plan and really nice benefits on the front end, that's great. But then if you lose that job or you decide to move on, you should be able to, to have some options that enable you to access those you know, affordably, because you, you cut out a lot of the administrative and the monopolistic um, uh, tendencies that, that have been brought into the system. Dean, tell me this. Um, uh, Chairman Khan at the FTC, I think she mm-hmm. needs to look at some antitrust regulation when it comes into some of these just, just I mean, gargantuan uh, monopolies that are developing in consolidation, both within the healthcare systems at the metropolitan, you know, the local and regional level. Uh, we saw it here in Missouri where uh, St. Luke's and BJC have banded together. And from what the data I show says, it's it, it seems that that usually results in higher costs overall and lower patient experience because it's just a big machine that develops. There are advantages because, you know, they can sometimes provide tertiary and quaternary care that people do need at, at some point, and that's, I get that. Um, but is the FTC looking at monopolies and antitrust or not? Well, uh, to our knowledge, no. Uh, they have a, an issue where they want to try to get rid of uh, so-called non-compete agreements. This is where the, the local hospital monopolies basically indenture the physicians and make it hard for them to, you know, walk across the street and set up a direct primary care practice or something. And um, those non-competes can go too far, and FTC is looking into them. I don't think they should ban them altogether, but we do need uh, legislatures to regulate them. But on the question of consolidation, where, you know, big hospital companies just, you know, merge and form a monopoly, I don't see anything coming out of the Federal Trade Commission on that. And that's very unfortunate, because we do have something called antitrust law in this country. And one of the basic concepts is that in a market area, a geographic area where there is competition, you have to make sure there are enough competitors. Over the decades, uh, courts have basically allowed the definition of a market area to expand and expand so that, in effect, it allows monopolies but pretends they don't exist. And that's uh, yeah. You know, that's what's happening is these local areas now, the prices are going through the roof and um, we need to fight that. I think uh, the best way to fight it is primarily 
through payment policy changes. I mentioned site neutral payment, where right now yes. basically the government is incentivizing the creation of these monopolies. We can end that by, by reforming how Medicare uh, pays, and most private insurers tend to piggyback on uh, Medicare's payment policies. We need to repeal local certificate of need laws which are these uh, state and local laws that basically prevent new competitors from coming into a healthcare market uh, based on the idea that, well, we, we, the government, will decide whether that's really needed. And often they use a board that's dominated by the incumbent uh, competitors. So basically they have an incentive to shut out any new competition. And with reforms like that, I think we can really help to uh, spur competition in local healthcare markets and that's that's yeah. definitely very needed. You know, Dean, I, I saw a story that was very troubling, and I think it speaks to one of the core problems in healthcare costs. And I, the government is leading the way now that what what two thirds of the of the healthcare dollar in this country that's spent is in behalf of patients and by the part of Medicare or Medicaid. I saw a story that right. CMS is proposing a three point four percent cut in Medicare physician fees for twenty twenty four. That really, uh, right. on top of the previous ones, amounts to about a 26% cut for doctor fees since uh, roughly 2001 or so. And, you know, I know here I am a doctor and everyone's going, what are you doctors complaining about? You guys have nice houses. You drive nice cars. Quit your wife. The, the reality <laughs> is, the reality is, I looked at this at this um, memo that came from this fee schedule group. I, I forget what it's called, but... Um, Dean, it was 2,000 and some odd pages long. And the list of people that were on that, the bureaucrats, went on for two or three pages. And if people would look at giving Medicare recipients a debit card and saying, go buy your health care directly from your provider, go buy your MRI, go buy your catastrophic plan from Golden Rule or Mutual of Omaha. God love you, Marlon Perkins. God rest your soul. You know, can you imagine what a different world would be instead of the imperial federal government being our, our papa and mama and telling that everyone they know what's better? I'm telling you, doctors are going to be dropping off. Of Medicare, they can't pay their they can't pay their 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 overhead with what Medicare pays, and it results in less and and I think shoddy care in many cases because they're having to see more and more patients in less and less time to just keep the lights on. And I, what is wrong with this government that they won't let the free market work? Dean, sorry for the rant, but your turn. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I agree with every word you said. Uh, the government does tend to mess up of these markets. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid, you're right, they severely underpay doctors and facilities for their services, and that results in problems for patients getting access and getting quality. Uh, Just to put it in perspective, Medicare only pays about half of what a private commercial insurance company would pay for the same item or service. And Medicaid, the program for low-income folks and uh, nursing home folks, uh, pays only about a quarter of what a private commercial right. insurer would pay. And so you're right. Often uh, it's just not enough to cover their costs of delivering care. So they find ways to not see patients or avoid pr- providing the best care. I've had loved ones who, through dint of circumstance, have been on Medicaid for a while, and they felt it. They felt like third-class citizens as patients. And it's, it's simply awful. because the it's government awful. underpays. But yeah. the, the thing yeah. is, um, 
how do you get the the proper incentives? Uh, clearly, when you put a bureaucracy in charge, you're going to get this problem. It's so easy to just vote to cut back the amount we're spending and say we did something good. We preserved the life of the trust fund or something like that. The fact is you're hurting people. We have right. to do something like what you said, which is put the patient in charge. Shift power yep. from bureaucracies to patients. Let patients control the dollars through things like um, direct primary care, health savings accounts. And at AFP, yes, we sir. believe every American should have access to a health savings account. Right now, only about one in 10 Americans, as a practical matter, can have an HSA, which really can stretch your health care dollar and, and it puts you in mm-hmm. charge of a lot of your health care uh, choices. And, um, and and then we do need that personal health care credit I mentioned, which is in uh, the yeah, Fairness yeah. Act, that would basically, the government would be giving you a fixed amount of money for your health care rather than the way they do it now, open-ended subsidies. And you could then take that around and shop for value. And what you don't spend, you get to keep it in your HSA. It, it, yep. it changes your incentives. So you, the patient, are shopping for value. That's what we need in health care. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. And I'm really thankful that you're out there fighting the good and the very difficult fight against forces that are, wow, strong, powerful, and oh, by the way, know which palms to pad when it comes to campaign (laughs) donations. That's a whole nother discussion. Dean Clancy, you are a uh, true patriot and looking out for for the little guy and gal. Thanks very much. I look forward to another of our occasional conversations on healthcare. Appreciate you very much, my friend. Oh, and likewise, it was a great pleasure. All right, there he is, Dean Clancy from Americans for Prosperity. And we'll be getting your um, those those uh, bills up on, uh, on the show page, folks, so that you can advocate for our uh, congressional uh, delegation here in Missouri, as well as anyone else that you know in your family. We've got to lobby for this so you control your health care, not some bureaucrat in D.C. or someone sitting at a cubicle at a glass, gleaming glass tower out on Highway 40. Sorry, but we've got to stop it. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about the new Miss Netherlands as we do some woke destroying. Well, they called her Miss Netherlands. I've got another idea. We'll talk about that when we come back on The Randy Tobler Show. Thanks for hanging with us. We went a little long with that segment, but um, healthcare is going to be in the news and in your personal financial news, whether you're employed or whether you're a freelancer, uh, it matters not whether you're on Medicare, uh, Medicaid, it matters not because uh, healthcare costs are projected in a recent piece I saw by analysts uh, up up 7% this coming year. Um, there was a little lull actually uh, in the last couple of years with all the money flowing into and all the disruption in the system with COVID. But uh, healthcare uh, providers, uh, both individual practices, facilities lost all kinds of money during that time, irrespective of some of the bailouts that, that they did or didn't get. Um, and um Large hospital systems, including the Harvard system, uh, I know you know regionally uh, and beyond systems that lost money, declared huge losses in the last fiscal year. And uh, in order to make it up and stay solvent, that means costs are going to go up. Period. It's going to happen. Um, and so you've got to fight for ways that you can control that by controlling the interaction between you and the person rendering that health care to you, and Dean Clancy and AFP are fighting for that. Uh, at any rate, uh, we, we're lighting it up here a little bit before we talk with Virginia Cruda, 
uh, at our regular visit at uh, in the 745 slot. And Leah, you sent me this story about um, I can't I just I can't bring myself to call these people miss or missus or her or they or these men who are dressing up and taking hormones to try to to be women. I mean, you look at this Miss ne- so-called Miss Netherlands. <laughs> One Twitter user said, "Miss Netherlands is a bloke." <laughs> uh, Rick, Ricky Valerie Cole, K O L L A, will now represent the Netherlands in the seventy-second edition of the Miss Universe competition in El Salvador. Now. Leah, I have to be careful because, you know, when guys start talking about beauty and women and stuff, it can sound misogynistic and objectifying women. But I'm speechless when I look at this person in comparison to some of the other just beautiful women uh, that were up on the stage. And I know that's not all of what what determines the competition, but this is sort of a beauty pageant, no? Now, you're a woman. What say you about this so-called Miss Netherlands who's actually a guy? What do you think? Um, I don't understand it. Like, if you if you could see, I mean, you and I can, but if you look at a picture of this um, guy, um, he's not pretty. Like, it, it says in the article, he's got crooked teeth and yellowing and crooked teeth and so i don't understand (laughs) why he won like are they just really trying to whoever the judges are are they just really trying to give in to the wokeness i don't i don't get it no you're right and and let's be honest about it the 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 body shape is very um androgenic yeah um the uh, let's just say that the measurements would be different than the typical beauty pageant winner. Let's just be delicate about that. If you look at the various measurements of the the body uh, uh, parts, you know, uh, you know, and I don't understand. Now, this isn't the first time Angela Angela Ponce from Spain was the first transgender in 2018. It's the same deal. They're just androgynous people. And because they happen to be males and you don't want to make, look, I don't think this is a matter of like having this dominate every waking moment and every, you know, on air minute that we talk about. But I, I think it, I think it, it sort of erodes our, our concepts of reality, right and wrong. Yes and no truth and falsehood. I mean, we've seen it in the political sphere. Now we see it in the cultural sphere. I think it represents a larger erosion of our societal norms, don't you? I mean, that it's just another example of the breakdown in, is there any truth anymore? That's what I'm worried about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's like this whole deal with um, with the whistleblowers. They say that, that the, the prosecutor Weiss, the U.S. Attorney Weiss, you know, should have prosecuted hunter biden he said he had the authority and he chose not to they said he was not given the authority i mean there has to be a truth and we have to all agree that okay you're a woman you're a man can't we agree that okay to say you're a man 
who is taking hormones and dressing like a woman. And if you want to officially change your name to a female name, we'll do that. But, you know, you can't compete against girls and women. You can't enter a women's beauty pageant. Maybe there should be a maybe there should be a men dressing as women beauty pageant. What do you think? Yeah. Called Miss Unisex. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think. What do you think? I think both in that and sports, if they would just create like an entire just thing for the transgender people, I'd be okay with that. You know, just keep them out of the women's sports and the women's beauty pageants. Mm -hmm. You know, let them have their own thing. Did you see this story where 40% of Brown University students, Brown University, a formerly respected elite uh, institution of higher education, 40% of the students there in a poll rep said that they were they they identified as LGBTQIA plus ampersand pound sign <laughs> whatever. I mean there's something wrong, Leah. This is not this is not a biological phenomenon. This is a cultural phenomenon. This is a this is a social phenomenon. Did you notice that when you were at Lindenwood University? Did you notice over the time you were there? How, were, how long were you there? Four years? Three years? Four years? Mm, Five years? Three. Three years. Okay. Did you notice a change in the number of people that overtly identified as one or the other, you know, LGBTQ? No, I would say no. I mean, I don't okay. know. I mean, I was in the arts. I was in the arts, like, school part, but I did not notice that. Well, okay. Well, I think you're seeing it across. You're seeing it in in primary, you know, education, K through 12. You're seeing in secondary education, higher education. You're seeing, I, I don't know. It's just, uh, there, there's this social phenomenon, that social virus that is infecting um what if if you if you view the susceptibility of a given person to some kind of a radical ideology that then they adopt and act on and do something you know let's just say unorthodox of course what is orthodoxy anymore when you can when you can tell your employer that oh i have time blindness therefore when i show up late and punch the clock a half an hour late you have to accommodate me i think the best cure for that is a pink slip by the way not accommodation but that's another point um, I mean, we all do that. I've overslept for something I shouldn't have. I mean, we all do that. You know, that that happens. I mean, if it hasn't happened to you, God love you. You're perfect. You know, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who's habitually claims that they have some kind of a crazy problem to justify some non-performance at work. Are you kidding me? Um, I, you know, I just think that you're you're looking at a point where you have people, especially in their early teens, uh, and I think even up into their early 20s, depending on the individual, they just haven't they're 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 not immune culturally. They haven't developed the immunity yet to be susceptible to crazy, wild schemes. That's why we see young people passing out at frat parties much more than they do than 40 year olds at the bar, although it happens. But judgment improves over time. And these people and susceptibility to crazy wild schemes like some of these crazy things you see on remember the cinnamon challenge and oh there's other things what is it the choking thing where you're supposed to hang yourself until you pass out well some people hang themselves till they die 
you don't see 40 and 50 year olds doing that. Even 35 year olds, you see, you know, 15, 16, 18, 20 year olds doing that kind of crazy stuff. Well, now they've just been infected by another virus, which is I'm, oh, I'm not, I'm uncomfortable with my life. That's a time in life when you are uncomfortable. There's uncertainties. So now who's in to fill that gap and make things more certain? This, this transitioning movement. And those of us who have cooler heads and better judgment need to tell them no, rather than enable it. It's not good for them. And we're seeing now the longer term fallout from these studies. They're no better after their, after their mental illness that led them to thoughts of suicide until they were transitioned. The same kind of thoughts of suicide, the same levels of depression, anxiety, and higher levels of regret when they undergo the radical surgery. We're seeing that now exist and surface to the top the longer that these people are followed up. Oh, well, enough for that. Let's see what Virginia Cruda has to say in a few minutes when we talk with her on The Tober Show. Make sure you keep it here on 1019941 and make sure you join us for the 20, uh, the second birthday party on the 20th next Thursday evening. Um, it'll be great out at um, Johnny's Hideout in High Ridge. You can learn more on 93.9. Uh, did I say 93.9? Yeah. <laughs> Newstalkstl.com. Newstalkstl.com, uh, where you can learn more there. I'm Randy Tobler. There's Leah. We're the Tobler Show. Be back in a few. We're back, and we always look forward to talking with Virginia Cruda, who you uh, read and hear a lot from here on Newstalk STL, as well as on the Daily Wire. And um, you've been getting more into cultural things, Virginia. You've been talking about Lisa Marie Presley and... Reese Witherspoon, man, you cover a Demar Hamlin. Yeah, what's on your mind this morning, Glenn Greenwald? Oh, I'm gonna do a little of everything. So that's I don't really have a specific beat. So I do whatever needs to be covered. That's what I do. All right. Well, let me let me ask you. We were talking a little bit about um, about uh, Miss Netherlands and Mm -hmm. about how there's we seem to have lost any compass in terms of. Yes and no, right and wrong, black and white, truth and falsehood, man and woman. And now we've got Miss Netherlands, who is ostensibly a guy. I mean, you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, that's a that's trans, that's guy. Participating mm-hmm. in the 72nd Miss Universe pageant. What say you? Um, well, I think that when... Women fought for years for equality and rights and the ability to vote and the ability to, you know, work alongside men in jobs where they typically hadn't been accepted before. I think that they underestimated the patriarchy because the patriarchy is certainly willing to go to some serious lengths to take these things back from women. Um <laughs> when when it, if you like, and I, I'm laughing, but I'm not because this is the lengths that men will go to to and and I, I don't know I'm not saying men writ large because I don't think the average man is willing to do this but the idea that we are now that, that, that women fought so hard and so long for the ability to be seen as equals only to let men take over Championships, and now I will say this: I don't know if you know this. The um, the World Cycling Competition um, circuit is now banning trans women 
who transitioned after going through male puberty. I saw that. Good news. So that that's, an, I mean, I don't think we need that stipulation. I think they should just ban trans women. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the fact that they're willing to take that step, that says something because they're admitting there is an advantage. There is a physical, yeah. biological advantage for men, particularly men who have gone through puberty, competing against women. And it's something that we all know. I mean, I, we're we're just waiting for someone to be, uh, well, I realize there are a few people saying the emperor has no clothes, but we just need enough voices. Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, in another piece of news, uh, of course, this this week, this Ray, I wanted to ask you about the Ray uh, testimony. It got quite mm-hmm. heated up on Capitol Hill this week. Yeah. And we, we keep having these recurring uh, stories with the same template, Virginia, and that mm-hmm. is a, an official, an administration official or a DOJ official, an IRS official, an FBI testifies to one thing. And then a whistleblower says another. And in this case, it was Ray saying that the FBI did not surveil uh, parents who raised their voices at board meetings. And then a whistleblower says, no, I was part of my unit. I was taken off of a a child pornography unit to investigate this through a domestic terrorism unit. The the little guy listening to these, you know, the, 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 the average American just trying to put in their day at work and go to the baseball game with their kids and watch their daughter swim, you know, in the competition, <laughs> they're going like, who's, there's got to be a truth here. How, how do you process these disparities between whistleblowers and the officials? What's unfortunate, I think, and this is, this is where you see the difference between the generations. I think, um, like when I have conversations with people, my, my mom's age, they don't like to believe that politicians or or members of institutions like the FBI or uh, the IRS or that th- they w- they would be willing to get on the stand and lie. They don't want to believe that. Well, some of them do believe that, but they don't they don't want to believe that. And so they kind of give these guys. Well, and and so the whistleblower could be some disgruntled somebody who got fired or didn't, you know. And so they kind of make these excuses. Then you look at Mm -hmm. people like me, you know, not only am I, you know, a Gen Xer who questions everything anyway, uh, (laughs) I'm also (laughs) conditioned to question this because I work around it every day. So when I look at this, I assume everyone's lying until I can prove otherwise. Oh, that's how cynical. That's gonna. That's not good for your for your stress hormones. Uh, that's not good. No. Your your oxytocin well, levels are low. That's not good. The, the thing is, it doesn't really stress me out. I just I I know human beings. I know that they're likely to lie if it's advantageous for them in some way, whether politically okay. or because they want power or because. They want to stay out of trouble. I I know that people lie, okay. and and so I assume that unless there is a compelling reason to believe otherwise, 
that they're going to sit up there in CYA. And so when when Ray does that, it doesn't shock me. It doesn't upset me. It just says, hey, maybe we should figure out who is telling the truth or find where the evidence is. It's kind of like the whole Hunter Biden and and uh, the cocaine at the White House and the fact that the Secret Service. Tell me, does this not concern you if the Secret Service can't figure out who left the baggie of cocaine at the White House? What if it had been rice in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. No. Do we really pr- do we do we do we assume that the people who couldn't figure out who left the bag of cocaine near the Situation Room? Do we assume that they are also capable of protecting the president if that had been something lethal? Or do we assume that they're lying about not being able to find who left it there? Yeah. Because it's one of the I don't other. Know. Well, I could see though if if before you go through screening. Well, here's my to, question. But to get into the White House to that point, yeah. who goes through screening? Visitors, right? Yeah, right. I mean, I've I've been. Do you go? Seat. Do you go through screening before that point? Before the cubby hole? Somehow, at the fence? Well, I think I you go know. through screening before you go into the White House. So, but here's here's my thing. Like I w- I went to CPAC a few years ago, and I attended a speech that was being given by a presidential candidate. It was not Trump. It was I think it was a I think it was Ted Cruz or Rubio was speaking. This was 2016. So I was getting ready to go in and to go into the auditorium where this person was speaking. I had to go past four Secret Service agents, two of whom rifled through my purse, and past two drug wow. dogs. Holy cow. To get into an auditorium where a presidential candidate was speaking. You tell me if you think the security might be a little tighter going into the place where the actual president lives. Yeah, okay, I hear you. Yeah, okay, point one. So I'm thinking that the only people who don't go through that screening, and Dan Bongino made this point last week, the only people who don't go through that screening are high-level staffers and family members. Yeah. Which is why he said there is almost no way that this yeah. belonged to someone who didn't live there. Yeah, so by deduction, you have to assume that this was someone who was slipping through and without the usual what, tourist what's, protocols. What's great about this is that the White House is like, yeah, we're, we just don't, we don't know who, we don't know who left it here. Well, okay. They could really, if they, if they had bothered to just throw out a scapegoat or say something, you know, they could have deflected from this. Instead, they leave it open to speculation because by not answering the question, who's who left this here? They suggest that it it was hunters or worse. And by worse, I mean the presidents, the first ladies, Kamala Harris. I mean, take your although at this point, I don't think they'd be too worried about throwing Kamala Harris under the bus. But it. <laughs> as far as publicly d- dropping her yeah, right. as, as yeah, it was hers uh, we're going to run with somebody else next time um, yeah. no I, so I, I don't know well, about I don't, that I but. don't know well I, I, I think yours is a credible theory um, I'm sort of in the boat of your mom to where I and people of your mom say, I, I don't want to believe it, but I, yes, having covered it now on on the show and doing, doing this program for over 20 years, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I just, 
you see so much graft and corruption. It's just crazy. Hey, we got to run. I, There's I think a difference, I'm buying though, between not wanting to believe it and refusing to believe right. it. And there are a fair number no, of no, no. doing I, the latter. Right. I, I think it's a disappointment in terms of recognizing the yeah. reality that, yeah, uh, our original human sin shows through. And the more power you have, I think, the more transparent that original sin is. Virginia, yep. great analysis as always. We look forward to talking with you next week. Keep up the great work. Have a great weekend. Sounds Thank good. you. All right, there she is. Uh, when we come back, guys, we're going to talk to Michael Bussler, get a breakdown on what's going on in the economy. Stay there. Lots more coming up on the show. Welcome back to the program. It's always fun when we get together with Michael Bussler, professor of finance at Stockton University. Uh, and, uh, Michael, I saw your piece that was relatively optimistic about the recession that uh, you predicted will be mild. This was from a couple of weeks ago in uh, in Newsmax. Yeah. Uh, on the heels of the employment data week before last, and then this week's data on the inflation news, what, uh, you, you know, round and round she turns, where does the spinner land this week, Michael? Okay, so here we are, and thanks for having me on your show, Randy. As you know, it's always my pleasure to be here. So some of the um, economic uh, data is coming in a little bit mixed, making it uh, difficult for uh, economists to try to forecast what's happening. So let's start on on the good side. The uh, annual inflation rate has come down to 3%, and that's the lowest we've had it uh, since uh, before President Biden came into um, office. So that's a good thing it's come down. The Federal Reserve has tightened up on the money supply, significantly raised interest rates, and it has brought the inflation rate down. Now, on the not so good news, um, most of the decrease in the inflation rate is due to falling energy prices, which in the last 12 months have fallen roughly um, 30%. Uh, food prices, which shot up and then came back down again, has uh, food prices are also uh, declining, uh, and that's bringing the inflation rate down. So if we take food and energy out of the inflation rate and look at everything else, we have what we call the core rate. That's still running about 5% and has been for well over mm-hmm. a, a, a year now. What I'm afraid of on the inflation front, energy prices have come down, that brought inflation down, that's true. But the reason energy prices have come down is primarily uh, China. They completely shut their economy down at the end of 2022. It's very difficult for them to reopen it. So their their demand for energy has been much lower. If they start to to recover, and it looks like they, they are, and at the same time, many of the oil producing nations, Saudi Arabia and Russia in particular, and much of OPEC, uh, it's cutting back on supply. That's likely to lead to higher energy prices. And already in the last three or four weeks, energy is shooting up a little bit. Instead of uh, oil being in the low 70s per barrel, it's now up to $80 uh, per barrel. Saudi Arabia says they'd like to see it up to $90 a barrel. So why do I bring all this up? The core rate stays at 5%. If energy prices start going up again, which it looks like they are, that could, we could see a rebound in the inflation uh, rate. Uh, so we'll have to see what happens on that front. Now, on the recession, 
I've been calling for a recession on your show and others really for the last year and a half when beginning of 2022, GDP declined in the first two quarters. I thought, well, here we are, the recession. However, I was wrong. And what happened was the federal uh, government's massive spending and in the last four fiscal years, um, that is um, uh, 2021, 22, and fiscal 23, the federal government has deficit spent $9 trillion. So that mm. caused much of the inflation. And the reason I bring it up now is um, a lot of the spending went to the states, and the states finally got that money to send started spending it in the last half of 2022 and that's what allowed gdp to grow now their spending state spending is leveling off the economy grew at only a two percent rate in the first quarter of this year the second quarter the date will be out at least the first estimate in a couple of weeks most of the my colleagues are calling for about a one and a half to two percent growth and they're still thinking that a recession will follow uh, sometime before the uh, end of the year. Now, one last point. Uh, you you uh, mentioned a column I wrote that the recession will be milder than most, and I continue to believe that. The reason is normally during a recession, uh, business slows down. They lay off a lot of workers. Workers being laid off have less money to spend, and that slows the economy further. This time, because we have a severe labor shortage, there's almost 10 million job openings and only 6 million unemployed people today. What we'll see is the unemployment rate during this recession will not go up very much, but rather the number of job openings are gonna drop significantly. So I think the recession will be uh, relatively mild. Let me go back to the employment numbers because I thought that I saw some signs that were interesting and perhaps fairly ominous in terms of where people are prioritizing their spending, whether they're individuals or the government. Um, and I saw that there were really dramatic, I think 60,000 of the little over 200,000 jobs that, uh, you know, reported in, um, in June were, were government jobs. And having government heard job. what you just said yeah. about government spending, that probably reflects new programs with governments that were flush with money, money bolt burning a hole in their pocket. They threw legislation and, you know, regulatory apparatus, whatever. Oh, we got money. Let's start a new program. Oh, we need workers to work that new program. Um, yeah. I, that's my theory. I saw a little dropping in hospitality and services. You're seeing people reprioritize. And at the same time, I'm seeing record levels of personal debt at credit card levels and others. I don't know, man. Yeah. I see a storm brewing that hasn't yet exploded into a big thunderstorm. What, what say yeah, you? Yeah, and I would, I would agree with everything that you said. And indeed, um, one third of the new jobs created roughly were created in the government sector. The private sector, the number of jobs uh, did not increase significantly. And in some fields, the number of jobs uh, actually fell. Consumers, um, in order to pay these higher prices, and let me also say, the inflation rate has come down. It doesn't mean prices are falling. It means they're not going up as fast as they were. So they're still mm -hmm. increasing at a rate much higher than we're, we're used to. Remember, prior to the pandemic, the inflation rate was about one and a half percent. So it's still uh, increasing. Surprisingly, 
normally when prices go up, consumers have some resistance to it. You know, I'm not going to pay that higher price. I'm going to look for something else. Maybe I'll cut back on what I buy. That's normal behavior. Mm-hmm. This time, consumers are paying the higher prices. And I think the psychology is, well, I better pay the higher price today because it's going to be even higher tomorrow. Now, once you get into that psychology and they start paying the higher prices, they don't have enough money to do it. So what do you have to do? You start bringing out the credit card and consumer credit is at sky high levels. So eventually that's going to be too much for consumers to carry. And you'll start to see a decline in consumption, which, again, I believe will lead to a recession before the end of the year. So your observations, Randy, are spot on. You know what else I'm worried about as a result of that of that dynamic, Michael? I'm worried about more call, especially in this election season. There's nothing more that legislators and politicians and aspiring politicians like to do than promise people relief from their burdens. And I'm just afraid we're going to see. Well, we already saw the Biden administration is doing an end around on the debt forgiveness thing by lowering the the threshold at which people, once they've paid off a certain amount, then they can be excused from the rest of it. I just think we're looking at a terrible uh, a perfect storm here. We're in this political season. People, as they start having to default on their credit cards, declare bankruptcy, whatever, lose their job because of a mild recession or more, that they're going to ask for mama and papa government to pay the bills. And that means more programs and more spending. I see an endless cycle, but I guess I'm a little pessimistic by nature. I don't know. I'll say that's a, a good observation. And the, the current administration is not shy about deficit spending. <laughs> uh, they had a, a $3 trillion deficit in 2021. And he brags and says, look, I've cut the deficit uh, in half, but it's still $1.5 trillion in each of the next uh, two years. And the burden of that debt uh, is starting to catch up to us. As you, you know, we had the big debt ceiling uh, issue. We, we finally resolved it. And many people think, at least on the conservative side, that that was not a very good solution because the debt is continuing to uh, grow. The other problem with the, 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 the public debt is um, there's no mechanism in place to ever pay that money back. No mechanism in place to ever pay that money back. So when they run a deficit, the government says, well, I'll sell a 10 or a 20 year bond. They sell the bond, you pay the interest. When the bond comes due, they don't have the money to pay it back. So they sell new bonds to pay back the old bonds and roll over the debt. That's why the debt keeps increasing. The problem with that is a lot of problems, but one major problem is when most of this debt was taken out, interest rates were one, one and a half percent on uh, government bonds. Now they're up to three and a half, four percent. So even if you don't take on any new debt and you just refinance what you have, the interest expenses uh, are going to at least double. How bad is it? This year, the uh, interest expense will be about uh, $500 billion, $500 billion in interest. But if we refinance that at higher interest rates, you could be looking at a trillion dollars a year in uh, interest expense that the federal government, rather the American taxpayers, uh, are going to have to uh, pay and have that burden. And of course, that's less money that you can't use for productive means. So I agree with you. An election year is coming up. The um 
government's going to say, well, look, we're going to here to help you. We're going to spend this money. It's just going to make things uh, much worse. We can't keep kicking the can down the road. We're at the end of the road now. Well, Medicare is going to, you know, become insolvent, theoretically, in the next administration. And and their answer is more bureaucracy, more control. I just saw an over 2,000-page document justifying what is a proposed 3.5% cut in Medicare physician fees. And that was rendered by legions of bureaucrats, Michael. And I, as a healthcare guy involved in the new healthcare economy, which is direct transactions with patients, as you know, that's growing momentum against all pushback from big pharma, big government, big uh, insurance uh, conglomerates. Um, why doesn't this government, and this is a nonpartisan question, why don't politicians yeah. realize that the best way they could, quote, solve our problems and fight for us is to let us keep our money and shop for our own services and goods? You know, that that's never been the government philosophy. They, they think that they can spend your money more wisely than you can spend uh, your, your money. You, you know, Randy, you, you bring up a real uh, excellent point here. Medicare is on the verge of insolvency. Social Security is on the verge of in, insolvency also. So why do we have such a hard time reducing government spending? 60% of government spending goes for entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, et, et cetera. Those programs, it's nearly impossible to reduce spending. Now, they try these things. I'm going to limit fees to doctors. That's not going to do it. Uh, so they're trying some things. But why is it so difficult? Well, look, if, if, if you want to get the, the problem solved, there's really only uh, two answers. You either uh, in, uh, decrease the amount that you're spending or you increase the amount of taxes that you're taking in. Both of those are not really feasible. We can't cut uh, spending. And already in Social Security, people pay 12.4% uh, of their wages, you pay half and your employer pays half. And then Medicare is another 2.3%, you pay half and your employer pays half. So you add up all those those taxes, over 15% of people's wages, you can't raise taxes anymore. So how do we solve this problem? I think uh, some politicians have come up with a uh, an answer that may not be bad. And uh, when I looked at this, there really is no good solution to solving this. There's no good solution. So if you can't find a good solution, the next best thing to do is to find the one that's the least bad. I think mm -hmm. what the only way to resolve this is to raise the retirement age uh, for both Social Security and Medicare up to at least 70 and do it gradually so there's no pain caused on a lot of people, but do it uh, gradually. That way you'll have people working a little more and paying more in and collecting a little later so you're uh, paying less out. And that, I think, is the best solution. And again, there's no good solutions, but I think this mm -hmm. is the least bad solution. Let me say one other thing. When Social Security was put in in 1935, you retired at 65, the life expectancy was 67. So I collected for a couple of years. When Medicare was put in in the mid 60s, you started collecting in 65, the life expectancy was only 70. So you only collected a short time. Today, 
people are living well into their 80s, 90s, and people are living up, mm-hmm. up over 100 years old. Well, you, you, you can't collect from the government for 30, 35 years. It just isn't going to work. So I think raising the retirement age is the least uh, bad solution to solving the problem. Well, I think on both accounts, uh, we should look at what Bush tried to propose, W, which was some privatization options as well. And I don't know why those aren't in play. At any rate, hey, great talking to you. I'm thankful for your words of wisdom and your always spot on analysis. I hope you're right that it's a mild recession. I hope that somehow, uh, you know, we we don't end up in a calamity. We'll follow it and we'll be talking in the future as uh, I know you're monitoring that very carefully. Thanks, Michael. Really appreciate you very much, man. Thank you, Randy. Always my pleasure to be here. All right. Professor Michael Bussler from Stockton University. Well, we're going to switch gears, talk a little bit about public safety, which, of course, is on everyone's mind. Uh, The Long Island killer, uh, at least we believe that guy's been nailed for many of those killings that happened several years ago. Uh, We'll talk about forensics, modern technology, um, the current status of policing. And some disturbing reports on mass shootings with uh, Betsy Branter-Smith from the National Police Association. Straight ahead on The Tobler Show here on 1019-941 News Talk STL. Stay there. Welcome back to the program. Day 25. Glad you are with me. And I'm also very, very glad that Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association is with me because when we talk about public safety matters, she is our go-to here on the program. And thanks for being with me, Betsy. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Some troubling news. Uh, A database maintained by the AP and USA Today says that uh, from the first in the first six months of this year, the nation has had 28 mass killings, which I guess we need to define um, the worst time period in that window since 2006. What's what does that mean? And, you know, just in terms of the definitional uh, values of that. And what does it tell you about the state of uh, crime and law and order in our country? Well, so in this database maintained by the AP and USA Today, they uh, calculate that 28 mass killings have happened in six months. And they um, they call a mass killing um, where four or more people other than the suspect are killed uh, in 24 hours. Um, okay. So of these killings, these are these are primarily shootings. All but one uh, was a shooting. There was an arson where uh, an entire family was killed. But um, of course, we're talking about the Louisville Bank shooting. We're talking about the uh, Nashville Covenant School shooting. We're talking about the shootings that occurred over Fourth of July weekend in uh, Philadelphia and Baltimore. Um, and uh, when you read. The, the their editorial, if you will, about the information they have in this database, they talk ex- almost exclusively about the guns and how the guns are committing these mass crimes. And uh, so we have to take a look, of course, at the politics of it, um, but then also talk about what is happening in our society that people are pulling out guns, you know, going to a, you know, whatever it is, to uh, a block party, into a school, into a bank, 
and deciding to shoot a bunch of people. Yeah, so uh, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, this database, I guess, since 2006, this has been recorded, and it's, clearly it's not the guns, but it seems to me as though, Betsy, we, you know, on the one hand, it seems like we have two arms of criminality, right? One is sort of the crazy person who may not really have much of a history, but everyone that knew him or her knew they were a, a bit weird. No, let's say a lot weird, <laughs> but they may not have priors. And on the other hand, we have these recalcitrant uh, criminal types, gang-related stuff, people that have been in and out for various things. I'm thinking of the Chicago black-on-black killings and what we see in St. Louis and you know many metropolitan areas. There seems to be sort of the mental health aspect on the one hand with these mass killings, at least that's my impression, and just the, just the blatant, I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I get away with it. On the other hand, when it comes to the, you know, to the to the gang related stuff and the drug related killings, am I am I right in that analysis? We got no, you're at you're you're yeah, you are absolutely spot on. And and this is the thing we have got to look at um, why this is happening now, and uh, not that this hasn't happened in the past. But look, we have thirty two thousand different street gangs in this country and we we are losing that battle of dealing with the street gangs and what makes a street gang uh, thrive drugs prostitution and other crime what has happened in the last three years we have seen uh the vilification of the american law enforcement officer to the point that cops are leaving all around this country in record numbers you combine that with the more than 70 George Soros installed prosecutors like you had in St. Louis um, who are not prosecuting the crimes, the, the lower level and often the high level crimes that are brought to them. They're not properly prosecuting them. And then you have this movement of decarceration this movement that you know what the prison system and the justice system are racist they're unfair so we have got to get people out of prison remember black lives matter just quote unquote celebrated their 10-year anniversary this week and they tripled down on their calls to defund the police and get everyone out of prison so it's no wonder that we have these mass killings and of course, you know, the tens of thousands of other random homicides that America experiences every day by multiple methods. Um, it's no wonder that we have this horrific crime problem in America because we're not really talking about the real issues and street gangs is one of the many. Yeah, so we have a strategic problem in terms of just sort of, you know, taking away a lot of the, a lot of the authority and the respect for policing. Uh, we've got prosecutors who are on following through, public officials who are soft on, you know, the, well, here in Missouri, Governor Parson shut down a, a you know, a, a jail or two. You know, I'm like, what are we doing? We need, seems like we need, when we've identified these, these career criminals that just can't be rehabbed, I mean, at some point you need to say enough already. But what I've, ta- I've talked to uh, uh, some detective friends in other jurisdictions, not in St. Louis, but in Missouri, who 
tell me that as a result of the BLM and the general activity and the general rhetoric about, oh, police are profiling and they're too, you know, they're they're stopping people with a headlight violation because they suspect they're, you know, it, what I'm saying is I know where there have been violent crimes task forces, which tried to basically identify and get before they could could commit the violent crime, get these people under control by basically the cops know who the detectives and the cops know who the bad guys are. It's a minority of people that end up doing the, sh- the drive by shootings and the, you know, the, 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 the gang related and drug related shootings. But a lot of that, of that community policing, that early, you know, profiling, it's profiling of the criminal, of the criminal mind that that's been taken out as a tool of, of many police jurisdictions. Is that, is that a fair diagnosis as to what's going on in the last decade? Well, it absolutely is, because we have been told now, the media tells us, the activists tells, tell us that criminal profiling is racist and that you can't, you can't for example, uh, what most police departments do is flood high crime areas with more cops. And we use things like stop, identify, and frisk. But we're told that that's racist. We're told that, you know, you, you can't do that anymore. Uh, we're also, we also have to understand that when you defund your police department and when you are shorthanded, one of the things that, that uh, goes away is uh, community policing and also proactive patrol tends to go away and cops end up being like firefighters where we just respond to one emergency after the other. And you're right. You know, most people are not committing crime. Being a criminal is a choice. Being a violent criminal is a choice. And the way that law enforcement officers very often solve these cases, again, is very much boots on the ground police work combined with public cooperation. You know, we just saw this in Baltimore last weekend with this horrific mass shooting at a large block party. Uh, where there was nearly a thousand people there and multiple people were shot, the Baltimore police are getting very little cooperation um, in solving that crime because people aren't willing to uh, cooperate with the police department. You know, so this just becomes this horrific cycle of frustration. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and when you have less and less detectives, to be able to do the follow-up on these cases, you're going to have a lower and lower clearance rate. Talking with Sergeant Bessie Brantner-Smith from the National Police Association, um, let's drill down a little bit on this witness participation in stopping crime, because that obviously is where a lot of work is done. People get, I know the police departments, they get, you know, when when people do call the anonymous tip lines or whatever, they, you know, they're inundated with a lot of things that they have to follow that don't pan out, but occasionally they do. So they invite those calls. But how much of this, uh, of a failure for the community to report something that they suspect, either before or after the fact, um, relates to what we talked about earlier with criminals being released too easily and and feeling threatened like hey if i call betsy with my suspicion i knew a little something about this i have no trust that the system's going to lock this guy up and he's going to be knocking on my door and blowing my head off i mean frankly i believe there's fear involved and how much in, is involved with well they're my friend and i'm going to be a i'm going to be sort of a silent accomplice i just don't want to out them 
Wait, I mean, are both true or neither true? Yeah. What, what do you think? Absolutely. Do we have any data on absolutely. what drives that? Yeah, absolutely. Both are true. Remember, in, in communities like Chicago and L.A. and, and uh, you know, Philadelphia and St. Louis, where there's a heavy street gang um, presence, you know, those gangs are there not just to commit crimes and make money. They're there to enforce. And so if you say, oh, yeah, I saw, you know, John Jones uh, commit a drive-by shooting last night. Well, guess who's going to show up at your front door, you know, or at your workplace or drive by, uh, you know, commit a drive-by on you or your family members. You know, that's very, very common. So, you know, when you're living in a gang-infested community, you don't want to cooperate with the police because you're, you're trying to protect your own family. And uh, so, you know, that can be very dangerous. And also, you know, if you if you, you know, stop a police officer and say, see that guy down there, he's carrying an illegal gun and that guy gets arrested. He's going to be out in about 16 hours before the cop ends up finishing the police report. And uh, and he'll maybe have an ankle bracelet on. Maybe he just, you know, signs a piece of paper and he's out until trial. And guess what? He's coming for you if he knows who committed the crime. So absolutely, there's fear involved, you know, fear for my family, fear for myself. And of course, there's that, you know, the old, hey, I don't want to be the one who ratted people out to the police. And people know know their police departments are shorthanded as well. Sure. Well, let's, okay, before we wrap it up, I got to ask you about one other thing in this realm. Um, And that is the the whole notion of we can do both at the same time. I mean, we talk about gangs and how they exert intimidation and threats on young would be gang members that are making choices. And I can understand a young person that's in middle school being approached by a gang member and say, Hey, you want to go, uh, what your mom and dad say, you know, do the right thing, show up right at work, do your, uh, you know, do your homework and, you know, be in by curfew and are, you want to be one of us. And by the way, one of us is being fun, but also if you don't be one of us, okay. It seems as though they've created the, the, the do-gooders have created this false choice that we, we either police and we eliminate the, the termite colony uh, or we eliminate the wood that the termite colony feeds on and we create a nice healthy environment. And I can't see that we can't do both. Why can't both be true? That we work on social improvement and offering healthier, safe alternatives for these kids at the same time as we eliminate the people that threaten and intimidate and coerce them. Why can't both be true at the same time? And why aren't communities doing that? Why is it either or? Well, you're right. Both can be true. The problem is is that people are looking to government to fix this. And, you know, and, and especially looking to the law enforcement community, law enforcement cannot be the solution to all of society's ills. And you just said something so important. You said, why would, you know, a kid, why are they going to go against their mom and dad telling them to come in on time and do their homework? Because very often there is no mom and dad. You know, there's oh, probably God. not a dad. There might be a grandma. There's, you know, people uh, you know, kids now are living on social media. They have very little parental supervision. Um, you know, so, so, but there can be all of the above, but we have got to start looking at, we've got to stop looking at government 
and look inside ourselves, look inside the home, look inside our faith communities and our schools. And we've got to stop telling kids that you're a victim. You have no control over your life. And so just do whatever you want because only your feelings matter. We've got to go back to those old fashioned ideals of other people's property matters, other people's lives matter. And that we are all here in the United States, the best country in the world. And we live in a system that says, I don't steal your stuff. You don't steal my stuff. And we don't hurt each other. That's what we got to go back to. But again, what are kids learning in school? What are kids learning on social media? America's bad. Morals are bad. Do what you want. It's all about your you and your feelings. It's all about me. And I think that's an erosion of faith in America, too. I mean, the faith construct, whether whether it's Jewish, Muslim, you know, Christian, that Abrahamic tradition of there is a higher authority in my life up there called a God rather than I am my own God and I will do what I want to do because after all, I am the supreme being in the universe. You're right. I mean, this postmodern humanist thing that has just infected everyone in our society um, is not good. And uh, when the government enables the erosion of the family, by the way, that's not helpful either by uh, giving people that that not not a safety net but a hammock and it's too easy for people not to be committed to the children they have and the marriages that they have and on and on but i guess that's that's another conversation over another cup of coffee right betsy absolutely (laughs) this can go on all day all right. Hey, I love when we get together. Thanks for being with me and unpacking this. I, well, I, if you got a couple of uh, just a 30 seconds or so about the Rex sure. Hurman arrest on this uh, cold case in uh, up there in Long Island, that's really a triumph of technology and great policing, no? Oh, it really is. I, I encourage people to really read the details of this case. And yeah, everybody's, of course, fascinated with serial killers. And this guy uh, was just absolutely classic. And you can see his behavior unraveling over the past several years. And uh, great job by law enforcement on that. But I want to caution people, not every police department has those kinds of resources to solve crime. But But kudos to those cops and that community. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're when you're voting for your, you know, city councilman, your neighbor, uh, I mean, your mayor, uh, you know, make sure that one of their platforms is to adequately fund not only the human police resources, the boots on the ground, um, but the resources they need, whether it's personal protection or the technology they need. I mean, that's a one two punch. That's very powerful. Betsy, thanks as always for joining me. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, there she is, Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith. When we come back, uh, let's uh, let's have some fun, Leah. Let's have some fun with um, some absolute, absolute um, delusional thinking on the part of a major media uh, presence about Joe Biden. And I'll prove that that guy is wrong. That major media writer is wrong. And we'll have some fun with Kamala Word Salad, too, when we come back and wrap it up on The Tobler Show. Stay with us. about y'all oh by the way my number is 314-912-1019 don't forget do not forget to join us for the uh the birthday party next thursday um at uh at johnny's hideout there in high ridge it's great you can learn about it on uh, newstalkstl.com all the details but uh you know the arps and the jones and arp show will be there at um when's that start four o'clock right and then uh 
and then at seven o'clock music. I mean, it's going to be fantastic. You do not want to miss it. Uh, actually, the actual second birthday is the 19th, but the, the 20th is when the celebration is going to happen. And it's because of you that there is a second birthday and that this is the just the growingest talk station. Really, I think giving you the, the best analysis. I listen to the shows all day long, all weekend long. Uh, I listen to Eric and Bob following this show, Tony's show at later. I mean, uh, you know, Katie and Tony on every afternoon right before to Chris and Tim. And then, of course, we got, uh, you know, we got Mike and Gabe in the morning and, and Vic and Ken after that. And it's just one great show after another. Um, so if if you want to come out and say hi to everyone, do that next Thursday uh, evening. Um I'm going to do my darndest to be there. I don't know if I can be there. I've got my daughters in from North Carolina. I think we had something planned that I don't know whether I can get out. Or I'm going to try my darndest, though. Um, see if I can be there. But make sure that you are there for the uh, second birthday show, uh, birthday celebration. Now, Leah, I keep having recurrent nightmares. I wake up in a cold sweat because I'm afraid of what might happen. What might happen, you know, depending on who's going to be uh, leading our country uh, the next day, the next month, the next year, the next administration. And I'm even more concerned when I think about news clips that I hear, like Eugene Robinson, who's a far left commentator and a writer, opinion guy. I couldn't believe what he said the other day in an interview, uh, speaking about Joe Biden. This was in the wake of his NATO trip, and he was just extolling Joe's great NATO genius. I don't know where the genius is coming from. This is the same guy that last Sunday told one of the Sunday shows that, you know, we didn't have enough 155 millimeter ammunition uh, to supply Ukraine anymore, so he's going to supply cluster bombs. Not that cluster bombs are necessarily bad. If Russia's using them, okay. If you, someone's coming to a fight with a gun, you better bring a gun. I mean, that's not necessarily the point. But you don't tell the rest of the world that America is running shy of a given munition. Anyway, here's what Eugene Robinson said when the conversation occur, uh, turned to Biden's cognitive competency. Yeah, every anybody who's spent any time with Joe Biden uh, in the in the, since he's been in the Oval Office knows that the reality is nothing like the the, the dystopian picture that the Republicans are trying to paint of of this senile doddering uh, president, and he's as sharp as a tack. And now. You didn't you didn't AI like audio shop mm -hmm. that, did you? Leah? No. Did I just hear this guy say that Joe Biden oh, is God. sharp as a tack? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we have two examples. I'm an evidence uh, driven guy, as you as you all know, if the evidence says one thing that's counter to what I previously thought, I will revise my opinion. I try to base what we talk about on this program based on evidence. Uh, and okay, there is some ideology involved, but uh, that's all that's based on evidence like the nuclear family and the traditional mom and dad with kids gives a kid a best chance. That's not that's not ideology like the left says. That's 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 anthropologically true. It is. It's just uh, sociologically true. At any rate, I, I, I digress. So we've got two 
two Biden bites. You know, once in a while, we like to play a Biden bite for you. Remember, you just heard Eugene Robinson, leftist columnist, say that Biden is, quote, sharp as a tack. I present to you exhibit one. This Let's play. What do you have? Clip A or clip B? I don't care. Play them in both. either direction. Okay. Let's play clip A first. And this is exhibit A as to, you know, why they're, whether Joe Biden is sharp as a tack or not. Here it goes. Soon NATO will be the 32nd freestanding, have free, 30 free, 32 freestanding members standing together to defend our people and our territory. Sharp as a tack. Don't you dare touch that tack. It will impale you. You'll bleed to death. That tack is so sharp. Okay, here's exhibit B. All right, well, I tell you what, um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask the White House photographer to come up, and all I'm going to do is I'm going to stand. I can't, I usually shake everybody's hand, but I'm going to stand in front of each section. No, I really mean it. And then, and if you can see the camera, they can see you. And uh, it's the least consequential part of this whole meeting for you. I promise. All right. God save the queen, man. Okay, now, now, this was not even in the United Kingdom. This this was a speech uh, in mid June when Joe Biden closed out a speech to gun control advocates domestically. This is domestic speech. You just heard him say, "God save the Queen, man." You gonna play that Eugene Robinson clip again? And. Sure. That's why I wake up in cold sweats. We've got a media that is absolutely delusional. Here's Eugene Robinson on Joe Biden. Yeah, every anybody who's spent any time with Joe Biden uh, in the in the since he's been in the Oval Office knows that the reality is nothing like the the, the dystopian picture that the Republicans are trying to paint of of this senile doddering uh, president, and, and he's as sharp as a tack. And yep. Sharp as a tack. But don't worry. Don't worry. Lest you be worried, should Joe really truly develop any cognitive problems? We have Kamala waiting in the wings, and we have the final bite to give you sound security and faith that should she become the president because of one problem or another with Joe, nothing to worry about. Behold, Kamala Harris, the presumptive president of the United States, waiting in the wings, our artificial intelligence czar. Here she is. Part of this issue that should be articulated is AI is kind of a fancy thing. It's, first of all, it's two letters. It means artificial intelligence. But ultimately what it is, is it's about machine learning. And so the machine is taught. And part of the issue here is what information is going into the machine that will then determine and, and we can predict then, if we think about what machine, what information is going in, what then will be produced in terms of decisions and opinions um, that may be made through that process. Okay, nothing to worry about. There you go. I, I just wanted to give you some reassurance as we wrap up the show. All is well in the White House. Don't worry. They're in control. Sleep on that. I know you won't sleep real well on that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but we did have some fun, didn't we? We'll have some more fun next Saturday. Thanks for being with me. Stay tuned for On The Money. Remember, faith, family, and freedom. That will keep us on the true way to uh, restoration to this greatest country the planet's ever seen. We'll see you next time.